Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, July 20th, and today, Tina Wynn comes by to talk about Ginny Thomas, the activist wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. She's been asked to testify before the January 6th committee, and she's refusing. But is Thomas as influential in the MAGA universe as people think she is? Tina will explain. And later on, Eric Gardner and I discussed the proposed merger between Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster, and why the Justice Department is trying to stop it with an antitrust lawsuit that a lot of people are watching. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of Powers That Be. Hey everybody, happy Wednesday. I am joined today by Tina Wynn, who wrote a very illuminating, somewhat counterintuitive piece, which I say in a good way, about Ginny Thomas, uh, the wife of Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court Justice, and her role around January 6th and her perhaps relationship with her husband and whether that played into anything. Anyway, Tina, how are you? I'm excellent. Life's good. Life's pretty good. Just set the table real quick. Ginny Thomas has been all over the news for, I feel like, like a little over a year now. Her name just sort of burst into view a lot more in recent months. Why is that? So it's a combination of a couple of things. One, she's the wife of Clarence Thomas. Two, she was kind of involved in all of the activity that led to the insurrection. And when you take those two things and put them together, it paints, on the surface, a really bad picture. Mark Meadows's uh, text messages got released to the public after all of the subpoenas were issued. And in them, she is frequently texting Mark Meadows, asking him to look at the Kraken lawsuits and demanding that he release the Kraken, which sounds batshit because it kind of was batshit at the time. Her name was found in these text messages. She was referring to a conspiracy theory. Everyone looked at it and went, is Jenny Thomas a violent insurrectionist who wanted to kill Mike Pence? The answer is no. Why is that? So you have to know a lot of backstory about not just Jenny Thomas, but the conservative activist world Mm -hmm. overall. Ages and ages ago, like back in the 1990s, Jenny Thomas is an up and coming conservative activist who is a team player, wants to make sure the Republican Party succeeds, is not just a staffer for these congressmen and senators, but she's also working for the Heritage Foundation. She does a lot of interest group lobbying in the way that a conservative activist does, which is you put together a group of people and you call yourself an activist group. And then sometimes the people are influential, but you keep getting meetings with the more influential people on a regular basis going, here's what my people want. And she put together a couple of those in her lifetime, but that's how she got prominence as an activist in a world where conservative activism is the generating force behind why the Republican Party is as effective as it is. I'll put it that way. And she happens to marry Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court justice, super conservative, even from day one. The couple gets a status as like a conservative super couple. But does that mean that what she is saying reflects Clarence Thomas's beliefs? Does that mean that Clarence Thomas is secretly believing all the same stuff that Ginny does? Not necessarily. I mean, you can look at both of them as 
hyper conservative people, but they both come at it independently. And if you talk to Ginny, she would vehemently say, these are my beliefs. I came to them independently. How dare you say that I believe what my husband believes is because my husband believes it? Or how dare you say that he believes what I believe because I'm the more strident one? Well, this, I think you also mentioned something I think is important, which is there are a lot of misunderstandings about the conservative movement, which is mutated into the MAGA movement. And one of those misunderstandings is that all of these people are sinister, brilliant actors in on a secret cabal to overturn the government. And some people are, but a lot of people, and this is true about Washington generally, um, people are not sitting at the cool kids table. They want to be seen as influential, powerful, in the know. And so the fact that Thomas, while she might be a true believer and might want to overturn the election and might want to quote unquote stop the steal, the fact that she was like just texting Mark Meadows or pressuring John Eastman, the Trump lawyer, to sort of go along with overturning the election doesn't mean that she was coordinating the whole strategy. It doesn't mean that anyone listened to her. All of that is to say, yeah, the stuff she was advocating for on Facebook privately and her organizational efforts was contrary to our democracy and bad. But it doesn't also mean that she is the Wizard of Oz behind the strings, like pulling the levers of power, which I think is what a lot of people on Twitter and people on the left might think about the conservative movement. I mean, the bottom line, oh, yeah. going back to 2015, is Trump didn't hire the very best people. His campaign hired the leftovers, the people who showed up at CPAC every year were never allowed to like hang out with Mitch McConnell because he thought they were morons. Just from firsthand experience, the number of people who enter that room who actually have any sort of power, no one really does have, no one really has any power except for, in the Republican Party, except for like five people. And the rest are just like kooky activists who have those guys' numbers. I was talking to another former conservative activist about this recently. The thing about the conservative movement is that it's so easy for you to have the number of someone who's powerful and they'll always pick up your call. And even if you're saying absolute nonsense or even if you're like a little tiny baby intern, they'll still give you the time of day. And that builds this social cohesion that makes the Republican Party so powerful. Sure, Donald Trump had all of the fucking leftovers running his campaign in 2016, but those guys had people's phone numbers. And once it became clear that Trump was actually getting somewhere, those guys could start calling in their chits and everyone was like, well, I got to pick up this guy's phone number because now the social, I guess, investment I made in this guy ages and ages ago is now starting to pay off. Yeah, I mean, you know, that is exactly how it works. Like that defines also part of Washington. Having someone's phone number is currency and and not in a way where I'm going to call the White House chief of staff and hang Mike Pence, more like <laughs> you're at like an Orlando patriotic conference and you meet somebody and you're like, oh yeah, I've got Mark Meadows' phone number. I talk to Mark all the time. Flex. Exactly. That's a kind of flex that helps you feel influential and that helps you network. Now, I don't want to write off the fact that Ginny Thomas was spreading insane conspiracy theories and using those phone numbers to pressure very important people to do not good things. And so she has been asked to testify before the January 6th committee. 
she has asked the committee to clarify, why do you think I should? Do people on the committee think she actually did bad stuff? And will she testify? I have no insight into what the committee thinks on this front, but I will say one of the people I spoke to for this article is conservative activist who's been in the movement for decades, pretty high up there, I would say, who said that while he considered her kind of kooky and influential in her own way, but not in a I can tell Clarence Thomas what to do way, he thinks that it would help the legitimacy of the court if she went in and clarified her role. No one has really been able to determine what sort of intellectual relationship both of them have other than like, hey, we both are Catholics and we go on a road trip every year or something. The more that the court starts issuing all of these new rulings, the more that Ginny Thomas keeps showing up in Mark Meadows's texts and advocating the way that she does, the more it does call into question the legitimacy of the court. No one's been able to get to the bottom of what that relationship's been like ever since the early 1990s when her advocacy was actually brought up in Clarence Thomas's confirmation hearings as a point where they're like, hey, is there a conflict of interest here? Apparently not. He now is a Supreme Court justice. But the fact that that question's kept being asked, I think needs to be answered. The committee has done a very good job so far telling a story in a way that I thought they they wouldn't because members of Congress are kind of bad when it comes to building narratives. <laughs> but they've really, they've really, the narrative has been good like from uh, the way they've structured it. You know, every hearing early on was like, okay, this is going to focus on the election itself. This will focus on how Trump denied it. This next one will focus on how they went to the Capitol. Anyway, the more they sort of pull at strings that are just a little away from the central storyline is when they risk losing their potency because the longer it goes on, the ratings go down, people start to pay attention less. Like They just need to show what happened on January 6th. And maybe she will be relevant to that. But, uh, you know, getting into questions about whether the Supreme Court itself is too political just feels adjacent, but also somewhat not to the point. No, I mean, to the court's credit, they shut down every single election fraud case that got shuttled up to it. They were just like, nope, 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 every single case. All right, well, I want you to go read this piece. I mean, it's just really, I, because, Tina, you have such experience in the bowels of the conservative movement. Um and I think a lot of reporters, frankly, don't. And it's an important perspective to have. So everyone go read it on Puck. Thank you, Tina. Thanks. Welcome back, everybody. I'm joined right now by our legal correspondent, Eric Gardner, who has some interesting insight into the government's uh, antitrust uh, lawsuit aiming to block the merger between Penguin, Random House, and Simon & Schuster. Eric, welcome to the pod, as always. Thanks for having me. Just to step back a second, the Justice Department filed this antitrust suit late last year, I believe. What What is the heart of their case? Why do they not want Penguin Random House and just Simon & Schuster to merge into one? Sure. Well, this will take the big five publishers down one spot. It will create the biggest publishing house in the nation. The real key to this is that the Biden administration making a a pro-labor push 
usually when the antitrust cops come in, uh, they're looking at, you know, how a merger is going to impact consumer prices. This one is one that focuses on how this merger is going to impact the jobs market. The government says that this merger is going to, you know, diminish the buying power that all these book publishers have. So basically authors aren't going to get big advances for books anymore. But, you know, let me tell you that lots of unions across the nation are are focused on this trial because if the government wins, uh, it's going to put wind on their backs to oppose future mergers to say, you should scrutinize this for how this is going to impact uh, labor markets. Can you just unpack that just a little bit more? Like, where do unions play into publishing houses? Well, traditionally, let me let me take a step back. In, in terms of antitrust, when everyone thinks about antitrust, they usually think, you know, I, either price collusion or they're thinking about monopolies. You know, the, the classic is, you know, some company, you know, has a dominant share of the market and they're pretty much the only seller in the market. And so they can hike prices up and charge everyone an arm and a leg and we have to, you know, suck it up. This kind of flips it around. This doesn't look at sellers in a market. This looks at buyers in a market. And what are they buying? They're buying labor services. People, in this instance, authors who are selling their writing services. And so when you have less publishers, theoretically, that means that the, that the remaining publishers have more power over the sellers. You know, the, the authors don't have as many options to who they might go to to, to sell their uh, book rights to. And so the government's saying that creating a powerhouse that controls half the book market is not good for these authors. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So the key is to when you think of union, you're more thinking of how a a powerful company might impact the creators of a product, basically, rather than like, you know, the SEIU or AFSCME or some like hard hat labor union in Ohio. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, in this case, we're talking about authors, but it could very easily be like two steel companies who merge and all of a sudden they're cutting jobs. And so if by the same theories, the government would oppose the merger based on the fact that, you know, those who are, you know, wearing Howard hats uh, aren't going to have as great a time post-merger. One of the lead players in this, this legal fight is is a guy named Dan Petrocelli, who's the lead attorney for Penguin Random House. He says... The merger is pro-competitive. You know this guy pretty well. Why is he involved in this case? Give us a little bit of background. And does he give Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster some serious muscle as they go up against the government? Well, if I told you how this guy started, you would never have guessed that that he would become Hollywood's most like powerful lawyer. I mean, this is as a guy who grew up in New Jersey. He didn't go to Harvard or Yale or any Ivy League school. He basically moved to... Los Angeles and took night classes at like a third rate uh, law school, got his degree, worked for a small music boutique and, you know, just like worked his way up. Nowadays, he is the go-to lawyer for pretty much all these big suits, the, the suits where there's, you know, hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars on the line. He broke through back in the late 90s representing Fred Goldman against OJ Simpson. Then he represented uh, Jeffrey Skilling, the Enron CEO. A few years ago, he was the one who defended the AT&T Time Warner merger when the government tried to block it, when the Trump administration at that time said that it was anti-competitive. But he won that case. And now he's back. He's back in a different uh, antitrust suit, this time going up against the Biden administration. I mean, what specifically is he going to argue in this case to say that 
this is actually helpful to creators and and also consumers. Sure. He first of all, he's going to say that book publishing is unlike a lot of other industries, that it has a very healthy indie publishing market, that a mm-hmm. lot of the best-selling books are published not by the big five publishing houses, but by others. And he's going to say that, you know, literary agents really control a lot, have a lot of the power in, in this industry. They're the ones who basically invite publishing houses to bid for a book. And then finally, he's going to say that if you look at Random House's history, they basically aren't one company, but they're one company made up of many companies that Mm -hmm. have imprints and all these imprints bid against each other. And, you know, book publishing has changed over the years and, you know, uh, it's not the, not the same as what the government contends. So that's, that's his main arguments. Uh, and he'll have plenty of economic experts and book industry executives testifying. There's even going to be some star authors who, who are going to testify. I first reported that the government plans to, to call Stephen King to the witness stand. It's before a judge who has just been nominated to the appellate circuit by Joe Biden. And you got to think that because she was nominated by a Democrat that she might be pro-labor. I don't know what the outcome is going to be, but it'll uh, certainly be one to watch. All right, Eric. Thank you for once again telling me something I didn't know, but is also very interesting. Appreciate it, man. My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.